Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. These great words that introduce John's gospel are one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, and they talk to us about a profound truth, a truth that is the greatest truth announced since the creation of the world back in Genesis, the great event of the history of all time when God chooses to enter back into his own creation through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It is no accident that John echoes those words of Genesis that would be so familiar to his Jewish hearers, those great words that start the whole revelation of God in Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And you see there in that passage the same things that we see in John's gospel today, the word and the light, that the world was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the earth. But God spoke, God spoke his word, and his word was what created the light. God's word and God's light are what caused creation. And this second uh, creation, if you will, the beginning of a new world that comes through the incarnation of Jesus Christ is what John is talking about today. And this morning, we're going to do something that I'm not very good at, that I suspect many of you are not very good at either, and that is the idea of reflecting and pondering. We tend to rush around from one thing to another, and especially in Christmas, we are so busy that we don't stop to take in what has actually happened. So what I want us to do is to reflect a little bit on this concept of the Word becoming flesh and entering the world, and the light that enters the world through Jesus, and why that changes everything. So a little bit of context for our reflecting and pondering. We live in a culture and a world that denies the miraculous. Uh, we live in a world that is sort of like uh, the motto of the state of Missouri, show me. Uh, we believe that we can figure out everything and explain everything, and so we deny the miraculous, the very possibility of miracles. And we regard the world as much like those terrariums that you might have made in elementary school, that you put some things in there, and then you put some glue on the top and put the top down, and that world is just the way it is, and nothing will ever change it. Nothing can intervene. Nothing can come into that world. But the fact is that Scripture 
tells us that that is not reality, that the reality is that the miraculous is not only real, but has happened. That Scripture tells us of a God of love who miraculously chose to enter into his own creation. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. It was the central event in the history of the earth, the very thing that the whole story has been about. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and to bring the whole ruined world with him. As we reflect and ponder on this miracle of the incarnation, which simply means to put on flesh, carne is that word that means flesh or meat, I want to commend to you something perhaps a little surprising, a book from the fourth century written by St. Athanasius that is called On the Incarnation. Now this is not a long book, but it's also not a book to pick up and try to read straight through. It is a book to pick up and read little bits of and then ponder. It will make an amazing difference in your understanding of Christmas and the Incarnation. Our opening hymn this morning came from that same era, focusing on the Incarnation and the fact that Jesus is the third person of the Trinity, co-eternal with God. Lewis wrote a preface to St. Athanasius' book on the Incarnation, and he says that in our cynical age, we desperately need to recover the sense that Athanasius makes so clear of the truth of the miraculous. Lewis says, miracles are shown in Athanasius' book to be rather the retelling in capital letters of the same message which nature writes in her crabbed cursive hand, the very operations one would expect of Jesus who was so full of life that when he wished to die, he had to borrow death from others. Athanasius' whole book, indeed, is a picture of the tree of life, a sappy and golden book full of buoyancy and confidence. And the great thing about this book is it focuses us in on why this miracle of the incarnation is so important and so transformative for our life here on earth. Reflecting on the passage of John's gospel from today, Athanasius says this, for being the word of the Father and above all, Jesus alone was both able to recreate everything and worthy to suffer on behalf of all and to be ambassador for all with the Father. He took pity on our race and had mercy on our infirmity and condescended to our corruption and unable to bear that death should have the mastery. He takes unto himself a body of like nature. Because all of us were under penalty of the corruption of death, he gave his body over to death in place of all and offered it to the Father, doing this of his loving kindness to the end that firstly all being held to have died in him, the law involving the ruin of men might be undone inasmuch as its power was fully spent on the Lord's body 
And that secondly, whereas men had turned away toward corruption, he might turn them again toward incorruption and quicken them from death by the appropriation of his body and by the grace of the resurrection, banishing death from them like straw from the fire. Because Jesus is the word who is God, who was and is God, and through whom all things were made. He alone has the power to put on flesh, to enter into his creation, becoming fully human while remaining fully God. He is not like an actor in a play, but he actually becomes the character of the man on earth. If you were here Christmas Eve, you heard Jeff talk about the great author and theologian Dorothy Sayers and how she fell so in love with one of the characters in her stories that she wrote herself into the story and that that is what God has done in the incarnation. Sayers goes on to say this about the incarnation. Jesus of Nazareth was not pretending to be human. He was in every respect a genuine living man. He was not merely a man so good as to be like God. He was God. Now, this is not just a pious saying. For what it means is that for whatever reason God chose to make man as he is limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, God had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. He has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain, humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man on this earth, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and yet thought it well worthwhile. John tells us in this prologue that this word of God not only became flesh but dwelt among us, left footprints in the sand of this earth, the miracle of the incarnation, and that this word become flesh revealed the glory of the Father, that when you saw Jesus, you saw the Father, and this glory of the Father was that Jesus was full of grace and truth. We live in a culture where grace and truth are hardly ever combined. There may be much truth or much grace, but rarely grace and truth together, and that is part of the glory of God. Reflecting on this, the theologian N.T. Wright says, in the Word made flesh, we gaze upon the glory, not just of the living God coming to us in utter love in the person of this tiny baby, but of God's design for this whole world. God's design is to unite in Christ all things, things in heaven and things on earth. And part of the point of Christmas is that this marriage of heaven and earth, of grace and of truth, has now begun and isn't going to stop until it's complete. Part of the point of John's gospel is that this word became flesh, and now you can see what the word means, because you can say, look, there he is. There is the word of God walking and revealed through his scriptures. 
And we desperately need to understand that word walking around now in the world and the church. Our world has tried for so long to get grace and truth together, but we never succeed. Only when we put them together in Jesus can we find the way out of the darkness and into the true Christmas light. And that brings us to the second part of our reflection and pondering. Not only is Jesus the Word made flesh, the co-eternal Word of God who made everything that there is, but He also is the light. His life is the light of men, and that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Think about the power of light, how you can enter a dark room and then with the flick of a switch dispel all of the darkness that is there. Light uncovers darkness. But the problem for us is that what John says later in his gospel is still so true today, that the light has come into the world, but the men loved darkness because their deeds were evil. Yet, despite our love of darkness and the fact that God knew that we would often love darkness rather than light, and despite our evil deeds, God nonetheless chose to descend, to take on flesh, to become that incarnate Word, the only thing that can overcome the darkness. And one of the things that is so remarkable about God choosing to do this is that it is so upside down from everything that we learn in our culture. We learn from our earliest days that we should get ahead, that we should get more, that we should get money, that we should be with the right people in the right places, that we should have the right house, the right car, the right possessions, and that we want to bring in more and more and more to ourselves. And what we see in Jesus in this light of the incarnation is his self-emptying, that he sets aside everything. He sets aside the glory of heaven and the power and prestige that he has and enters into this world, as Lewis said, down, 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 enters into this world as a helpless, vulnerable baby in a stable and a backwater province of the Roman Empire. Lewis says, if you want to get the hang of what this feels like, imagine becoming a slug. It is a remarkable thing, and it is upside down from the world's teaching, but that is part of the miracle of the incarnation to show us that life and hope and joy and peace are only found when we turn upside down from the values of the world. So, given the great truth that we've been pondering on about the Word and the light, how are we to respond to this? How do we offer our hearts back to God to receive this Word and this light? There's a beautiful poem by the poet T.S. Eliot that's entitled Ash Wednesday, which seems a strange thing to talk about on Christmas. But there's a deep truth in this poem because Eliot reflects on the fact that in our modern world, it is very hard to hear or see the Word. And he says, where can the Word be found? He says, we can't find the Word because we don't listen to the voice, that we don't look up, we look down. We are consumed with our busyness. We have no time for the Word. We walk in darkness. We avoid the face, walking among the noise, denying the voice. 
and denying the miraculous. It is such an apt picture of our world. And I think Eliot hits the nail on the head here. The Word of God is speaking continually. The light of Christ is shining perpetually. But there's not enough silence and enough space that we make in our lives to be able to hear it. We are those who walk in the noise, who refuse to look up, who avoid God's face. We miss His grace, and we walk in the direction away from God. It reminds me so much of uh, the situation that many of us encounter if you have a teenager in your life who really likes his or her ear pods. And you can walk into a room, and that teenager will be completely absorbed in whatever is on his or her playlist. And you may be speaking to them, and they may be not making eye contact, and they may be moving around a little bit to the music, and you're trying to get their attention and utterly failing until finally you have to get right in front of them and say, hey! And finally, when you do that, they may take one earbud out and say, what? Most of us are not happy to be interrupted. But the fact of the matter is that you might say that Christmas, the incarnation, is the great interruption. It is God coming back down into his creation while we're absorbed in the hurry of our own playlists and getting in our face and saying, hey! And the point is that we need to pay attention because this light and this word are there, but if we're so absorbed in the own, our own playlist for our lives, we will miss them. It reminds me of some years ago when my son Witt was 10 and our St. Philip's Children's Choir went on its first trip to Canterbury Cathedral in England. And the Children's Choir had the great honor of singing choral evensong in this great cathedral uh, where evensong had been sung every day for over a thousand years. And in that great cathedral, over the entrance door, there is this huge window that's the great west window that the stained glass is mostly from the 14th century. And it's situated in such a way that as the sun lowers in the sky, there's a lot of gold-colored glass right where the beams of the sun hit the glass as the sun begins to set. And as a result of that, this beautiful golden beam of light comes through that window and down the central aisle of the cathedral. And it is absolutely a transcendent, beautiful experience to see. And as our children were coming into the church as the service began, they had a long walk down the side aisle in their red and white vestments, and then they came back up and came up the main aisle. And this beautiful beam of light was shining in golden splendor. And as the children began to climb the steps to go up to the choir stalls, as they reached the top step, their heads came into that beam of golden light, and they were illumined with this beautiful halo of golden light, and it was just astoundingly beautiful and moving. Friends, I think that that image is an image and type of the word and light of Christmas. The word and light of Christmas, of Jesus' incarnation, are always there. The Word is always speaking. The light is always shining like that beam of light. 
And the question is whether we will move into it. Christmas is the interruption that enables us to look up and see that that light is there and that that word is speaking, that we can be moved into that light and our hearts be transformed as we are reconciled to Christ who loved us enough to set aside his glory to put on flesh and enter our world. Christmas helps us to find that light again, but John reminds us that many missed the miracle of Christmas. He tells us that Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. They treasured the things of this world. They were looking down. They didn't want this light and this word. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus cautions us in the gospel later to consider where our treasure is. What are we focusing our lives on? That what we have in our hearts, what we treasure in our hearts, matters profoundly. And let us remember that Jesus knows our hearts like no one else. Every secret, everything we're ashamed of, every good thing we've done, Jesus knows all of it and loves us despite it. Where is your treasure this Christmas? As you reflect on the miracle of the Word and the light expressed in the Incarnation, reflect further on another miracle that what you treasure in your heart, each one of you sitting in the pews of St. Philip's today, what you treasure in your heart matters to the God of the universe. The very one who created the Word and the light cares about you and what you treasure in your heart. This Christmas, my prayer is that we will all, as we ponder and reflect, follow the example expressed in the beloved old hymn, what can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can, I give him, give him my heart. May the word and the light and the wonder of the incarnation interrupt us this Christmas and draw our hearts to Jesus. Amen.